0: Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Hey, this is Nay John, producer for the show. I'm recording right now from my home. It's Friday, March 13th at about noon. Uh, We recorded this week's show on Wednesday evening, as you'll hear Scott say soon, Obviously, a lot has happened since then. It feels like an entire year's worth of news in just a matter of days. Election results are slightly updated, of course, but all of the news and the information about the coronavirus can be overwhelming right now. So in response to that, we've made a guide for San Diego. It contains official guidance from leaders in the region, and we're updating it regularly when we confirm information. That is on our homepage, voiceofsandiego.org, or you can just head to VOSD.org slash Corona. All the information we think San Diegans need to know is there. Again, VOSD.org slash Corona, and on to the show.
1: Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice. Here with Assistant Editor Andrew Keats. What's up? Managing Editor Sarah Libby. Hello. Uh, so we were supposed to be doing this live. I happen to love these live podcasts. They've been a great way to connect with some of you. We were gearing up to do that in partnership with UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy at the Robinson Auditorium in UC San, at UC San Diego. But Monday night, UCSD's Chancellor Pradeep Kosla he announced that he was strongly encouraging people to, to cancel events on campus and non-essential visits. Now we are hardly non-essential, but we decided to respect the decision and it appears we had a domino effect. We did that and then the NCAA decided to have March Madness without fans.
2: Right. Yes. Uh,
1: a lot of other cascading effects from our decision. So um, we have already we had already booked the time though of our special guests who are here in studio. He has served almost two full terms on the San Diego City Council. He has a personalized license plate that says Rebuild SD. Is that the way it is? That's it. He may or may not say the word infrastructure more than I do. He is Mark Kersey. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, I got to ask you, so we're talking a lot about this and trying to make light because I think humans are inclined to make light of tragedies and difficult situations, but like uh, you, uh, you've, you've, uh, you were kind of a, a hipster on the idea of, of social distancing, of keeping people, uh, you know, uh, you've respected that when you hear people compare what's happening to the flu, uh, I imagine you have a lot of thoughts. The president did that the other day. What, what's your take on that comparison and how that, uh, how that comes off? Well, the flu is no joke. Um, you know,
3: uh, We've all had the flu, and I think that's why we don't all take it as seriously as maybe we should. Uh, but uh, I think it's probably some people know my my brother died of the flu six years ago at the age of thirty seven. He had no underlying medical conditions, no reason it should have taken him down, but it did. And uh, so it's something that um, you know I really kind of made it my mission to encourage everybody to get a flu shot. And now they're actually saying if you have if you've gotten a flu shot, that'll help you with the coronavirus too somehow. I'm not really sure how, but somehow it helps. So uh, so yeah, I mean it's. Um, uh, it's something that everybody's had the flu. Not many of us have died from it. Yeah. And so I think that's why we don't think of it as being as deadly as it is. But the coronavirus is more deadly on a kind of percentage basis, uh, you know, relative to the number of people get it. So uh, it's obviously very serious.
1: Yeah. If it's three, four, or 10 times more deadly than the flu, yeah, you, as everyone who's experienced bad situations with the flu would would attest, that's significant. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. It is. And you look at some of the numbers,
3: people are saying, you know, how many people they expect to get it, you know, or by the time this thing's run its course, millions of people. So we'll see. Uh, it's, it's obviously a scary situation.
1: What's the buzz in City Hall right now? Is Are, are people just kind of waiting to see how how things come out? Or are we already starting to see some of the impacts of, you know, tax revenue, stuff like that?
3: Yeah, the tax revenue is a big concern. I mean, we were already projecting a, a deficit year for next fiscal year. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is that the hotel tax, the TOT tax revenue has grown at a, a better clip than say sales tax, right? And unfortunately, with some of the cancellations we've seen of, of conferences already, and I think it's only like four right now, but if this continues and people don't let their companies, don't let their employees travel, uh, and we see more cancellations, that 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 could get problematic for the city's
1: budget for sure. Ooh. All right. Well, that's uh, something to watch. Thanks for coming in and, and taking the time to, Absolutely. Uh, to talk. Mm-hmm. Are you, have you been uh, okay with the level of leadership we've seen from the city, the county, and the state on this? I,
3: you know, I think people are responding to the facts on the ground as as best we can. I mean, obviously, you know, at Miramar, we're getting some of those quarantined patients coming down, and uh, they they've done a great job out there. It's not really their core mission, but obviously, they're yeah. handling it. And uh, you know, we haven't really seen a ton of impacts at the city. I mean, I've heard that uh, you know some of the hotel occupancies are already starting to feel it, and So we'll see, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the state level, uh, you know, we saw the governor's press conference yesterday. I mean, I think they're, uh, it's a fine line, right? You don't want to overreact and cause panic, but you certainly want to react appropriately. And it's, it's, it's hard to walk that line.
1: Yeah. Well, she was once a journalist. She actually led the chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists at her college. She's now the official political consultant of the Democratic Party in San Diego. She helped elect Monica Montgomery to the city council, and she does not hold her opinions in too long. She's Eva Posner.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So, uh... You're, you said you're finally getting some rest after the election?
4: Yeah, no, it's really great. Um, you know, I think normal people have New Year's resolutions, and those of us who work in the industry have post-election resolutions, um, so it's really exciting because you put things off for months, and it's like, I'm going to clean my car, and I'm going to go grocery shopping, and this morning so, I walked my dog, and it was just, you know, hey, very congrats. exciting.
5: <laughs> so a real Bulldogs ambitious thing. Yes, yeah. real <laughs> ambitious things.
4: Read books, you know, spend time with my child, um, have dinner with my husband, you know, some real basic life things that kind of get put on the back burner.
1: All right. Well, welcome. Uh, we look forward to your insights as your first appearance on the Voice of San Diego podcast.
4: Yes. Yes, it is. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't
1: be nervous.
4: Uh,
1: all right. All right. Let's go through some things we know. As of Wednesday night, Councilwoman Barbara Bree is 758 votes shy from second place in the mayor's race, and she's uh, trailing Councilman Scott Sherman. They both hope- to take on Todd Gloria in the runoff. So she gained, what, 78 vo- votes in the last count? That is a, this is a Wednesday night. Um, next race, uh, Nathan Fletcher, who backed Olga Diaz intensely in the District 3 County Supervisor race, endorsed Tara lawson Remer today uh, as yet another sign she did, in fact, beat Olga Diaz for that second spot in the race for that County Supervisor seat. Uh, they're both vying for the chance to take on incumbent Kristen Gaspar, who got 43% of the vote, uh, so far uh, from the primary. In the South Bay County Supervisor seat, Nora Vargas appears to have secured the chance to run in the general election but, uh, against the top finisher, Ben Hueso, state senator. And the two two Republicans have earned the chance to win two of the five open seats on the county or on the city council, but they did not dominate. So what is the future of the city council going to be like? That'll be very interesting to follow. And finally, Measure C Probably is not going to hit that two-thirds. It's not for sure, but it's stuck at about 64%. Might get up a, a few more. It doesn't look like there's enough runway for it to make it. We'll see. Well, let's just jump right in that mayor's race. Uh, what do you what do you think, uh, councilman? Uh, did uh, Scott Sherman, hold, has he got enough? Uh, have you seen some of these elections go through? Do uh, you, th- you have any predictions? Well, I mean, it certainly
3: looks like based on the uh, – the, the trends that we've seen over the last week since election day that uh, Barbara's gaining ground, and if they they keep you know rolling these votes out at the pace they are, and she keeps pulling uh, the votes that she does, she'll uh, it, it seems like there's a pretty decent chance that she'll be in the runoff. I mean, it's really tough. I, I in, in some ways, I feel bad for all of the candidates who are in these very tight races because it really is election month, not election day. And to have these nail biters and you're just a couple of votes every day, a couple of votes every day, I, I certainly didn't have that problem in either of my races, but it's um, – Just the torture of it has got to be just really grinding for these guys.
1: You were openly flirting with the idea of running, uh, and uh, you know he he ended up doing. When you did some of that analysis, was it pretty clear that the path to get into the runoff was not that hard? I mean, he he raised some money. He you know he got in quite late though, and um, and was able to compete really well with Barbara Bree. Is that the kind of dynamics you saw from the beginning? Yeah. I mean, this is on a macro
3: level, a very weird year with the presidential race overshadowing everything, which makes uh, strategizing at the local level more difficult than it normally would be. And you add to the fact that you had some established candidates who've been running for a year or more. Scott obviously got in late. Uh, A lot of the traditional kind of center-right business community funding had had already either gone to to Todd or to Barbara, uh, and so that wasn't as robust as it would normally be for a Republican candidate like him. And uh, I think you add all those things together, I I still am not clear. I've heard arguments on both sides that maybe because Trump didn't have real primary competition that, that maybe Republican vote wasn't as robust as it would normally be. But typically Republican voters are more likely to vote in the primary Irrespective of what's going on, so you know I'm not I'm not sure if we'll ever really know that, but that's uh, you know that's a factor as well.
2: Eva, the it it feels weird to make too many conclusions based on whether Barbara or Sherman gets through this uh, part of the race, given that it's going to come down to like 50 votes either way. That seems like maybe we should not really have too many different opinions depending on which side of that 50 vote threshold we land on, but uh how how different do you view where san diego politics stand if it's two democrats facing off to be the next mayor a seat that's been held by republicans for the better part of the last quarter century uh and if it's a, a democrat versus a republican like we typically see
4: Yeah, so I don't think that the voters are giving us some huge mandate for second place here that allows you to make any kind of issue by issue analysis or anything like that to tell you something about the wider electorate. I think that the bigger story is the overall vote totals and the fact that the Democratic candidates in the mayor's race got over 70 percent of the vote, regardless of who you're looking at. This is a Democratic city now. Um, Obviously, if if um, Councilmember Bree makes it through, then we'll have a Democratic mayor in San Diego come December. And that's very exciting. Um, but even if she doesn't make it through and Councilmember Sherman manages to squeak this one out, I don't think that it actually changes what the primary said. I think the dynamics of the primary started far before you know the election, the fact that the Republicans took so long to field a candidate, the fact that the candidate that they fielded is somebody who is notoriously known for having a countdown on his desk at City Hall for how long it's going to take to get him out of there. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the writing has been on the wall for a really long time, and I, I don't think that changes based on the primary results. I think that the general election results will actually be much more telling as about what's important to San Diegans and why they voted the way they did.
5: Uh, Councilman, if it does end up that Barbara Bree makes it through the primary, do you anticipate making an endorsement in the race? And do you think other Republicans and independents will weigh in on a Democrat versus Democrat race?
3: That's a great question. I mean, we certainly haven't seen that in this city. I'm not sure if we've ever seen – we've seen two Republicans, obviously. I'm not sure we've ever seen two Democrats uh, for mayor uh, in November. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's going to force a lot of reevaluation on the part of a lot of folks in terms of how they view – just the politics of City Hall and what their activity level is going to be. Um, I, I, one thing I found interesting is the uh, the level the level of vitriol from the Democratic Party against Barbara. I found that very uh, interesting. I mean, obviously they've endorsed Todd. We all know that, but uh, they're very very hostile, particularly Will. But I think the, the leadership generally is just very hostile towards Barbara, and and I, I I just find that interesting because if she does make the runoff and if you know she does win. You kind of what the relationship there is going to look like. Yeah, you're talking
1: about Will Rodriguez-Kennedy. He's the chairman of the Democratic Party locally. Uh, he did say to us in our politics report that he wouldn't consider her getting in the runoff as some sort of, or her eventually winning as any kind of consolation prize that they were determined to get Todd Gloria across. What's your take on that? You obviously talked to them a lot. Do you think it's better to have two Democrats in the runoff?
4: Yes, do I think that it's better to have a Democratic mayor of San Diego? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this speaks to Democratic dominance in the region, and I'm not going to shy away from that or pretend that I'm not proud of it.
1: Why is, why is so much, as he has he put it, vitriol toward her?
4: I think it has a lot to do with um, some of her votes in City Hall. I think it has a lot to do with some of the choices of the, not only the issues that she has campaigned on, but how she has campaigned on it. She's attacked our elected officials. She's attacked some of our Democratic clubs. Um, She. Has chosen a path to victory that does not resonate with a lot of the people in the Democratic Party, and, um, you know, they responded not only by endorsing Todd, but also by holding her accountable when when she does things that they don't think uphold Democratic values. Um, I think that does. Have a potential to be complicated in the future, but we'll deal with that when we get there. I think it's okay to have a conversation about what kind of party you want to have.
2: I wonder what do you think about how that positions her if she were to to overtake Scott and make it into the runoff. Uh, you know, a very simple analysis has Todd sitting at give or take like forty three percent of the vote, and the Sherman and uh, Bree combined vote at something like forty six percent. You know, what's the path to move? Uh, Todd, up and you know, past forty-three percent to 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 get the the fifty percent plus one that he'll need to win, and um, is it easier in some ways for Barbara if she's positioning herself between Todd and Scott to to build on her total?
4: Yeah. So I think you know, there's no question that the race becomes more complicated, more nuanced, and more expensive if Councilmember Bree makes it through, um, because. All of those organizations like the Democratic Party that have endorsed um, Assemblymember Gloria are going to have to put more resources behind explaining what makes him different and why he should be mayor. But I also think that it's a task that we're up to. Um, we've made our choice and we stand by it and we are happy to campaign. Campaigning is what we do. And we just need to put forward a um Vision for why he should be the mayor of San Diego, and that'll go in front of the voters, and the voters will do what they do.
1: What do you think is most important to uh, a mayor, the next mayor? Like uh, you know, we talk about all these uh, the race and the dynamics and the parties and the interests, but what what actually is going to be the biggest challenge that they face that they'll have to step up for?
3: Well, I think depending on how the budget situation looks over the next several months, I, I think the city's finances could actually wind up being kind of a sleeper issue that. Most of us weren't talking about a year ago that we might all of a sudden be talking about. Um, beyond that, I mean, I mean, the obvious one is, is homelessness, followed by housing, right? Or, or flip the order depending on who you're talking to. But I mean, those are pretty clearly the two biggest issues in, in the city. And you know, I think we've we've made a lot of progress, but there's still a ton of work to be done. And that's going to be the immediate thing facing uh, whoever the next mayor is. I, I would say the good thing is is that at least you know whether it's Todd or Barbara or, or even Scott. I mean, they've all been pretty exposed to these issues and to city government. So they the, the learning curve, unlike, say, when Filner came into town and he had been in D.C. for you know two decades or whatever, um, these guys at least understand the situation on the ground.
1: Let's switch a little bit. So you are a city councilman. Uh, you're termed out of your seat. Uh, there are two people running now uh, in the runoff for your seat, um, Marnie von Wilbert and Joe Lieventhal. Uh, Joe's the Republican. You endorse Joe, right? Mm-hmm, I um, and... Marnie though is a city attorney and appears to have pulled the plurality in that right, um, and so I guess um, my question is that your district was always considered the most conservative. Is the most conservative probably? Uh, you've run unopposed both times. Or? I, I had
3: I had opposition the second time, but, right?
1: Yeah. Um, and Carl the ran mostly unopposed, or before that, um, he, he, he had an opponent, more, a yeah. former firefighter. So I mean, he right. Right. That's right. So remember the sign? I sign do. Gate? I remember sign, gate, all that. Yes. sign gate, George, yes. George George was the guy's yes. name. <laughs> George George. Yes. Thank you. So but anyway, it was Which usually seen... make for an awesome sign. Yeah. I could get why you'd want to take that down. It, <laughs> it, it used to be seen as like the Republicans just needed to decide who was going to run and then it was it was settled, basically. Uh, now, this is a kind of a fierce, interesting battle. Is it is your is that district ready for a Democrat?
3: Well, the district, which used to be solidly red, as you said, uh, is decidedly purple now. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of folks who have switched from Republican to Independent. Something I know something about. And uh, there, some people have switched all the way to to, to full on Democrats. So it's you know it's just a different district than the one that I got elected to, which in the Before I got elected in 2012, you look back to 2010. The district at the time was plus 12 in registration for Republicans, and it had gone gone for Meg Whitman by 20 points over Jerry Brown. Wow! Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that was
1: not that long ago. It's not that 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 long ago. Plurality Democrats, right? They they actually like have a slight advantage. They do. Yeah,
3: they do. Would you be especially surprised to see an eight to one Democratic council majority? I tell you what, in this political world that we're living in right now, I, I wouldn't be especially surprised to see anything these days. Uh, you know, I mean, given given the the results from from Tuesday that we're still obviously getting updates on. Um, I think anything's possible. It, it, I think the in the D five race, it's interesting because you had Isaac Wang in there as well. Mm-hmm. Who, although he is a Democrat, he was running as kind of a technocratic, you know, city planner, uh, uh, very smart guy. Um, I, I, I like him quite. Actually, I like all three of the candidates. I know Marnie, I know Joe, I know Isaac. They're all really good people. Um, so yeah, it's
1: rather cordial and respectful and thoughtful. It's, it it it's is really kind of interesting. Yeah,
3: it is. They're, they're all good. I think they, any of the three of them could have, uh, represented the district. Well, obviously I'm, I'm supporting Joe, but, um, you know, I think Isaac's, I, I don't think it would be accurate to say that just cause Isaac got, I think 18% that that automatically moves to Marning. I think that those votes are, uh, are going to be up for grabs.
1: Hmm. You, you, yeah. You brought up. Uh, you left the party. You didn't go to Democrats, but you, you meant you stayed independent. Um, would you say your politics shifted at all, or that the party just wasn't a fit anymore?
3: Well, I think if you look at my voting record, it's not terribly different now than it was six, seven, eight years ago, right? It's, it's. I'm still pretty fiscally conservative. I'm still pretty socially moderate. Um, I, I think that. Like the district the 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 party nationally has has shifted in a way that uh, I, I just don't particularly approve of, and a lot of people in my district don't approve of. So that's I, I you know, so uh, on like
1: taxes and free trade and free market principles, uh, you know, resisting government unions in some ways and stuff like that 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 seems kind of. Basic and maintained, but this idea was some of the issues about like immigration and stuff like that was what uh, really fired
3: up. The immigration issue was a big one for sure. I mean, I I always thought that that was a missed opportunity, frankly, for both parties. I mean, bo- both parties have had complete control of the the White House and both houses of Congress in the last you know eight or ten years, and neither one of them was able to get a real deal on immigration. And that was a huge missed opportunity for both of them. Uh, so that was that was definitely uh, a criticism. In fact, if you recall back in. I want to say twenty was it twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen? David Alvarez and I co-authored a, a resolution in support of, of, mean, yeah. of comprehensive immigration reform, and I, I believe in it as strongly today as I did then. Uh, so you know, and, and I'm not anti-union by any means. I mean, Scott Sherman's anti-union. Yeah. Uh, I I am friendly with with labor. You know, I'll, I'll go to drinks with uh, with those guys, and and we'll agree on some things and not agree on others, and that's that, that's cool. That's fine.
2: You voted uh, last year uh, to allow a project labor agreement for the uh, airport authority's expansion of
3: the Terminal 1 project. Uh, Is that a vote you think you would have made five years ago? It's hard to say because being on the airport authority is different than being on the city council. When you're on the city council, it's by nature a very political job. Obviously, you were elected to it. When you're on an outside agency, whether it's the airport or the port or, or anything like that, Uh, In my mind, you have a duty to serve that agency. So you may come in with political beliefs, we all do, but you also have to think about the good of that particular agency. And the good of that agency may not mesh exactly with all of your political ideals that you've been talking about while you're in your other day job, right? And so for me, as much as I don't love PLAs uh, and, and don't support them at the city, when it comes to the airport, getting Terminal 1 rebuilt is the priority, and in this case, I, I you know I wish we could do it without a PLA in some ways, but in this case, that just became clear that that was going to be the quickest way to get that terminal redone, and that is absolutely the number one priority for the airport, along with all the uh, you know mitigation work that's going to go along with it, with the on-air roadway and the uh, the, the transit connection that we hope to get. Um, and so, a- a- again, I mean, I-, I took a lot of heat for that vote, and you know, that's well, okay. yeah. Oh yeah, have you slept?
5: You've been sleeping okay? I haven't slept
2: at all since
3: then. It's amazing. I'm still upright. No, it's, you know,
1: I mean, yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear, this is a reference to a threat that Carl DeMaio made to him that, to yeah. never let you sleep. Right.
2: right. Evo, I want to add uh, District 7 in, into the mix here. That has a relatively similar dynamic to District 5, where uh, the Democrat, Raul Campillo, got a plurality of the votes. And if you were to do the same simple but potentially wrong analysis where you add up all the Democrats and put all their votes together, they would potentially take over that seat from the Republican that that uh, district is currently represented by Scott Sherman. Uh, how much of a priority is it for you, for the party, um, to move the city council from a Democratic supermajority that can overcome a mayor's veto to a Democratic super, supermajority? How, how important it is, is it to, to pick up those seats when you already have what you have?
4: Um, So I think it is it is important um, because at that point, then we get to focus on on governing and have and the nuance of of the policies and our values and and, you know, negotiating essentially what the vision is of what we're going to get through as opposed to having to worry about the politics inside City Hall. Um, But I would caution against any analysis in nonpartisan races that just adds up the Democratic votes and and puts them uh, together. Um, While I definitely think that it shows a path to victory, these are nonpartisan races. There is no D or R next to the name on the ballot. Voters do not automatically know that this person is a Democrat or Republican. And it's been shown in multiple races on both sides that the candidates will essentially target their messaging to the district and the issues in the district as they should in order to talk to people about the things that they care about in the district, as opposed to talking from a purely partisan standpoint. And I think particularly in districts like five and seven, which are pretty purple, we need to make sure that we are running from behind, that we're not taking those seats for granted, that we are fiercely campaigning, um, especially because it's not like the Republican infrastructure doesn't exist just because we, um, you know, had a really, really good night on Tuesday. And I'm really proud of it, not only because of District 5 and 7, but also because Republicans weren't even relevant in District 1 or District 3 or District 9. So you have five open seats for city council and five examples of Democratic dominance, as well as in the mayor's race. I think that that's great. I think it's really exciting, and I definitely am excited to be a part of the the party that's done all the hard work to make this happen. But I definitely want to caution against getting too overly excited because we still have to campaign and there still is going to be spending. There's going to be campaigning from the other side. And, you know, they're pretty good at it. And so we have to make sure that we meet them.
1: It's just such a shock for somebody like me. I remember not that long ago, but especially when I first started here, the Democratic Party was just nothing. I mean, it was just like it was I mean, it was was like a club. It was, like was a, that it was what was that cl- quote we had on uh, um, a, like a Dems have no bench article like uh, Floyd F and Morrow yeah exactly <laughs> Floyd, they put up Floyd Murrow to run in in whatever 2008 it was just like a but it was just like a, the, the infrastructure that's there now was just non-existent I guess but let me ask you councilman when, when we talked about when we talk about the complexion of the council and we say well it's not necessarily blue versus red what what is it because you look at somebody like Vivian Moreno, who's uh city councilwoman barrio logan south bay area and she i think is facing perhaps a challenge from the left coming up perhaps uh but also she's she's really proven to be independent on housing and other issues what um you know what it how does it actually look how does it break down are there like different clicks than the right and left?
3: Absolutely. And, and I, I think it's it's very uh, oversimplified to look at it as just R versus D, blue versus red at the local level. I think that's useful at the national level and in Sacramento, but at the local level, so much of what we do does not fall neatly into partisan spaces. And uh, land use is a great example of that. Yeah. We deal in a lot of land use issues, and those are very rarely partisan. Those are geographic, they're based on you know, I, I don't know, just your background or, or, you know, kind of your philosophy about uh, what types of projects should go where we may have a mayor's race that really puts that fact into contrast. I think that's exactly right. And, and, and for all the folks who would want to see the, the Democratic dominance, I, I would just add a word of caution to be careful what you wish for, because my experience is that the ones the, the races that get the nastiest are the ones where it's the people of the same party running against each other. Because Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to differentiate when it's just R versus D. The public understands that. Uh, But when it's two Republicans – like we're seeing in the supervisor race with uh, Voss and, and and Anderson, that's going to get ugly. DeMaio Isa, Isa, or or Cordial two Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if if it's Todd and and Barbara, I, I think that has the potential to get very very nasty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. When when you look at the uh, Republican Party, what is the future of right center politics? If you were to, t- if there was a uh, up and coming candidate or talent, political talent or there was a business that really wanted to get involved in politics, but from a right-of-center perspective, what would you tell them to do? Would you tell them to, and they were, they were kind of like you, like, uh, you know, not into the immigration stuff, but right-of-center, free market, uh, that kind of thing, fiscal conservative. Uh, what's the route? Is there, a, is there an independent route, or is there a new party route, or is, it, is that why you're leaving, because you don't know what the route is? Well, I think the route right now is very unclear
3: uh, in the center-to-center-right lane. I mean, the, the Republican Party brand is is obviously not in a good place right now in California and San Diego specifically. And it's hard to see that changing as long as Trump's in office. Uh, whether he gets reelected or not I think is going to determine whether the party's overall fortunes improve locally anytime soon – uh, if, if he doesn't, I think there's a better shot two years from now, four years from, from now. Uh, if he does get reelected, I think people are going to be suffering for for a little while carrying that banner, especially in the city. I mean, obviously, East County is different. Some parts of North County are different. But in the city, it's just it's toxic. It's just very, very toxic. And I don't see a way around it anytime soon.
2: Eva, how much are you and conversations that you're in with uh, with the other allies preparing for this? uh lefty dem versus centrist dem uh framework of city politics where you've got maybe a chamber of commerce aligned democratic backed candidate versus a labor backed democratic candidate and you know how, how often do you see things how, how to what extent do you see things shifting to that sort of common framework of of how races sort out
4: yeah i mean i think that that is um definitely part of how things are headed and i think that it's going how it works out is going to be a race by race district by district issue um city council races are very different than county board of supervisor races which are very different from state races they have different jurisdictions different issues that they deal with and therefore those different interests weirdly play differently um but the thing is i don't I think a lot of people aren't used to seeing, at least in the public, these big dim on dim battles or or Republican on Republican battles. But those of us who are intimately involved in the process, we do primaries. We're we're in on this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not worried about it. I actually enjoy it. I welcome the opportunity to have a conversation about what kind of party we want to be. Um, I think that those conversations are important. I think they're important for the future of the Democratic Party. They're important for the future policies that we want to put forward that are going to help San Diegans. And I think that I would much rather be having that conversation than debating whether or not climate change is real or we should let babies out of cages on the border. I think that, you know, I would much rather have some kind of internal squabble that in the end, the policy that comes out that the voters have in front of them is going to line up with somewhere between 85 and 99.7 percent of my values than to have to worry about risking
5: um, electing people who don't. (laughs) One Dem on Dem race we haven't talked about yet is the 53rd Congressional District. And that strikes me as one where I don't necessarily see it playing out as somebody going for that uh, center Dem vote. What's your take on how that race might shake out?
1: Do you have any interest in it, by the way?
5: I do not. I do not have a dog in
4: that fight as far as like being paid to do to have that. Um, So I think that you're right about that. I think that, you know, both people are painting themselves on the left on the progressive spectrum. You have um, Georgia Gomez, who is, um, you know, painting herself as the community leader. LGBT Latina activist. Um, and then you have Sarah Jacobs, who is painting herself as a, a new generation of leadership. Um, I think that both um, conversations are worth having. And I think that it's exciting. I live in the 53rd. I'm perfectly happy with both choices. And I think that they have the opportunity to really tell people what they're going to do um, to make America a better place. I, and I think that that's just fine. Yeah.
1: What's the starkest difference between them, do you think? I mean, their backgrounds. That I was going to
4: say, I mean, I think their backgrounds are really, really different. Um, but I don't think that they are um, insignificant. I think that who you are matters. Um, I know a lot of people like to poo-poo identity politics, but at the end of the day, We have identity laws, right? We have laws that don't allow you to get a job if you're a certain person or you don't allow you to get married or don't allow you to adopt children or uh, to have a tax break or buy a home or all kinds of other things that there are laws in place that because society sees you as this certain type of person. And, you know, Georgette's background, um, the fact that she is Latina, the fact that she is LGBT, the fact that she grew up poor, those things matter. The fact that Sarah Jacobs is Jewish matters. Um, I think that gets erased a lot in the fact in in talks about her class, but I think that that matters. And I am excited that you have these two young, I mean, one's millennial, one's Gen X. There's a whole opportunity here to have a new generation of leadership. And I think that it turned out pretty much the best that 53 could ask for.
2: So they're both in the the 20s. I don't remember exactly what the percentage is on the, the latest count. I think it's like 27, 22, something like that. Uh, Sarah Jacobs at 27. So they, they both have a, a long way to go to get to a winning number. Is it possible to get that far simply on making the case for yourself as uh, a new generation of leadership or an LGBTQ Latina former community organizer? Or is there necessarily going to have to be some, some pretty negative campaigning?
4: Well, I mean I think negative campaigning works. I, I if it didn't, we wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um we it I know a lot of people say they don't like it, but it motivates voters and it helps people make decisions and I think that it is a reality that we live with and that is what it is. Um I do think because it's an open seat as opposed to an incumbent, there will be less negative campaigning. From a strategy perspective, if you have an incumbent, the first step you have to do is convince the public to fire that person before they can be convinced to to hire you. So you go negative in order to tell people why something needs to change, and then you put do positives about you in an in an open seat. That strategy is different depending on the circumstances. So I don't think it's going to be as negative as it would be if they were running against an incumbent. But I think that you're going to have to face a contrast, and and those things are going to be negative. And um, I think that I think that's fair game. I think it's fair game to tell the public what's wrong with your opponent. A lot of people don't like that, um, but you know, at the end of the day, people run because they think they're the best person for that office, and they think that they're better than other people for that office. And I think that you have an opportunity and an obligation to tell the public why that's the case.
3: And let's not forget that there are whatever the percentage is. There's some percentage of, of Republicans living in that district, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And and when you have two Democrats in the runoff, that whatever that is, twenty percent or you know somewhere in that neighborhood. Th- those folks are up for grabs. And and so someone's going to have to appeal to those.
1: And so do you necessarily move to the center a little bit more to try to pick up those votes? And which one decides to do that? I, it would be interesting. Georgette has had some connection with people on the right side of the spectrum, but uh, she's also been endorsed by Bernie Sanders and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So it's not... Yeah, I think it, it seems tougher for Georgette to
2: as long as she's going to, which I imagine she would like to tout her Bernie Sanders AOC endorsements. Uh, I guess the question is, if can if Sarah were to see that as an opportunity to look at all those Republican votes out there and uh, try to tack to the center to pick those up, does she risk losing what she has?
4: Um, I mean, I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. I, I think that Sarah has already shown a willingness to reach out to the other side mm-hmm. um, with some of the mailers that went out, um, you know, promoting um, in a negative manner, trying to pick her Republican opponent. I think that she has a team that's strategic and they're going to do what they think that they're going to do, um, that they think they need to do. Um, but I also know that Georgette is very pragmatic and that she has good relationships in city hall. She's got good relationships with the mayor. There's a reason why she got appointed to MTS and got, you know, city council president and a lot of, um, Political clout very quickly, and it's because she is pragmatic and because she can speak to people on issues that matter to them in a way that they understand. And so, I do think that those voters are up for grabs, but I disagree that people necessarily have to go to the right in order to get them. Because I think there are so many issues in Congress that Congress touches that you have the opportunity to talk to someone about any one thing that's important in their life and find a lane where you agree with them and congressional campaigns are very vast and have flexibility to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's step back a little bit too on on some of these other races that were fascinating. We talked earlier about the D3 county supervisor race. This is the real pivotal one. There's, uh, there's two other fascinating races in the county supervisor uh, discussion, but this one in particular could shift the priorities of the council of the county board of supervisors significantly. And I, I've even um, heard and, and contemplated that if uh, if Democrats do take over the county board, then um, Nathan Fletcher might try to sort of in the practice of the revolving chair uh, person system mm-hmm. where they just every year pick a new chairperson uh, and actually just kind of keep it for a while. That might be something to watch. And it would be uh, another step for him showing, uh, um, you know, the leadership on that, on that board. But I guess the question is to get that, they'd have to win this County district three race, the incumbent Kristen Gaspar, as you mentioned, the Democrats need to prove that she should get fired. Um, uh, you've, uh, you're in that district, mm-hmm. right? I am. Yeah. yeah. And so you've, are familiar with, uh, all the participants. I, I, I guess my question for you is what, um, You know, we watched what happened to Lori Zaff when they were able to attack her as a Trump uh, fan or with the most tenuous connection, I think possible, but they really did it. Um, Um, That connection was that there
2: was a uh, election night or a a post-election party at the Rancho Bernardo club of some kind. Rancho Santa Fe. Rancho Santa Fe, that Lori Zaff attended that and there was
1: a... Photo appeared in a community newspaper. Yeah, Boom. and End of city she had problem. no major scandals. She was uh, not—you uh, didn't really see it, the the upswell to throw her out, and yet she lost by like fifteen points. Is something... at a time when no city council incumbent had lost since nineteen ninety two. Right. So now we look at uh, Kristen Gaspar. Um, she's got. A, she's done a lot of different things, um, uh, but she also has has um, spent a lot of time um, uh, talking about some of Trump's priorities. Do you think she can overcome that in this discussion? I think she can. I think it's a question
3: of uh, turnout and, and what that looks like in the district. I think that uh, her, it looks like her opponent, uh, who I don't, I've never met. I don't know her. I just know her by reputation. I think she is significantly left of the majority of the district. I think Olga was
1: actually ideologic, ideologically a pretty good fit for the district. Let me just uh, provide some context. So we're talking about uh, Olga Diaz, uh, Escondido City Councilwoman. Uh, she came up short, Tara Lawson Reamer, uh, a uh, associate or adjunct professor and uh, also uh, uh, tied to the Obama Treasury Department. Um, she's written a lot of, uh, she was part of a, a lot of the organizing behind some of those Seattle protests and other major protests uh, back in the day. I talked a lot about, um, you know, World Trade Organization and stuff like that. She's written very, some very significant um, things, you know, to the left, as you said, as, in an academic way. Um, So, yes, so she's the one now running against Kristen Gaspar, and that's who you're referring to. Yeah,
3: Yeah, and and I don't know that she's a good fit. I mean, obviously, there are macro conditions that may just predetermine all this, and and it may just be a foregone conclusion, uh, as it was for Lori. But if if I'm Kristen's people, first of all, I would have never let her go meet with Trump. I think that was a terrible idea, and I don't know uh, exactly who gets the blame for that. But I think going and sitting uh, around that table with Trump and talking about immigration – you don't do that until you're actually running for Congress. And and she had done it. I think she did it a couple of different times. And uh, I like Kristen personally, but I think that was a terrible, terrible idea. Unless she's into it though, right? Well, but even so, I mean, presumably you want to stay in office and, yeah. and you could be into it and, and and realize that, Hey, this is probably not going to be something my district really appreciates. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I do think that if I'm her people, uh, I'm significantly happier about my prospects running against uh, Tara than I am against Olga. Mm-hmm. I think Olga would have been a, a, Uh, a tougher opponent from that perspective. But again, the macro conditions that we'll, you know, we'll just see. Yeah.
2: It was clear that the uh, Gaspar campaign preferred to see Tara Lawson Riemer in the, um, in the general, as opposed to Olga Diaz. Um, Were they right?
4: I don't think so. I don't think that the voters are going to see someone with a history of fighting for the community and policy knowledge as a weakness. Um, So I think that, you know, there are, bigger factors at play, um, as council member Kersey brought up. And I do think that at the end of the day, um, you know, supervisor Gaspar has shown over and over again that she doesn't stand with San Diego. She stands with Donald Trump, um, literally. Uh, and so we don't have to stretch that because that's where it is, but it's not, it's not just Trump though. It's also her opposition to affordable health care. It's her votes on, um, you know, allowing, big tobacco to put products out there that could get kids to smoke. It is the fact that she stands with um, polluters whenever clean energy is on the, on the table. She doesn't, uh, represent the county in the direction that it's going, and the thing that it, the things that it needs. And I think that that is the case that is going to be made against her. And I think we had two strong Democrats. I know we had two strong Democratic women run for that seat, and I have the utmost respect for both of them. Um, and I think that Council Member. Diaz did an incredible service to the city of Escondido and she does not get the credit that she's due a lot of times for the things that she was able to do there. Um, but I don't think that that means that Tara is any weaker of a candidate.
2: So uh, I think we saw towards the very end of the race, we saw there was like uh, maybe one or two mail pieces um, that were sort of attacks on Tara. Um, one it looked like a Picture of her with like a shaved side of her head, I I guess the idea of trying to make her look like a radical of some kind, uh, and excerpts from one of her um, uh, pieces of writing from when she was in uh, getting her PhD about property rights. Um, As somebody who runs these sorts of campaigns, how difficult is it to define a candidate in a race that's going to reasonably be like considerably lower in people's? Priorities and awareness when they go to vote, you know, if, if you stack up all the things that somebody might be interested in November, how effectively can you brand a, a candidate for a supervisor's district three race with something like, uh, well, she used to be involved in WTO protests and she wrote this idea about property rights when she was in, in getting a Ph.D.?
4: So I think um, it's really difficult to brand any local candidates. It's really hard to break through the noise um, once you get like really below Congress, even state assembly races, and they can raise buku tons of money, and it's still really hard to get people to pay attention. So I don't think that you know that branding is really an issue for the Democratic campaign, um, because at the end of the day, it's really about communicating with voters, and we run a better ground game um, and that's, what's really turned San Diego blue. This stuff isn't an accident and it's not a coincidence. It is, it is decade of hard work by a lot of activists and a lot of community members on the ground, um, in all places all over the County. Um, but North County is changing. Um, you know, in 2018 in AD 76, where Tasha Warner Horvath is now, uh, the assembly member, you've got two Democrats through the primary there. And, and so I think that there's just a lot of indications all over that district um, that you know, San Diegans are ready for Democratic leadership and they don't want someone who is going to go to the White House and talk to Donald Trump about immigration and sue her own constituents in order to you know uphold um, his immigration policies.
1: Let's uh, talk about some of the things in the – coming up in the future, if you wouldn't mind. I think uh, we, we're all looking forward now to November. Um, there's, uh, If we can get there through this summer, it'd be very interesting to watch. So you've put forward, uh, uh, Councilman, a proposal that I think is fascinating to change the San Diego city attorney's role or sort of governance situation. So right now, San Diego's city attorney is elected And since I've been here, that has been a debate. I remember Casey Gwynn in 2004 saying this should not be an elected position. Uh, Mike Aguirre later ran in 2008 as the city attorney and reinterpreted the whole office. He said, like, I'm elected, so I should represent the people who vote for me and not the city. And and in fact, sued his own, um, in effect, clients at the city uh, and really had a radical interpretation of that. And then subsequent city attorneys have interpreted it almost as strongly, though more subtly, you know, that they are very independent and they do not uh, necessarily take their cues or their direction from you, the city council and the mayor. And so you have proposed that that be shifted. What what actually would you like to
3: see happen? So what I propose in conjunction with three of my colleagues on the city council is uh, that we sp- essentially split the duties. So we still have an elected city attorney who would be the prosecutor, similar to how the county has the DA. Uh, and then you'd have an appointed municipal council uh, who's in charge of the civil advisory and litigation and, and policy advice uh, that, uh, that we rely on so heavily. And uh, I think it's- Which would be like the county. Which would be, it's, it's, it's basically the county model. Yeah. And, it, you know, the thing about the county we'll look at, everybody knows what the DA is, right? If the county council walked in this door right now with 10 other people, you'd have no idea who, which one he was. You wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I his name is, I think Tom Montgomery, Montgomery. but, <laughs> but, but if he walked in, I, I've never seen him before. I have no idea what he looks like. That's the way I like it. I don't want my lawyers to be on TV all the time. I don't want my lawyers, uh, trying to grab their own headlines. And this is a problem that, uh, you know, I think goes back probably to, to maybe right after, uh, John Witt was city attorney. And certainly in, in the, in the most recent history, uh, Gary was, uh, the worst example of this and and that's really what concerns me moving forward is uh you you've got always the potential for someone like a Gary to step in run a populist campaign that uh, for it's for an office that not really everybody knows what it you know what it's in charge of and then when that person gets in they can wreak havoc on city operations Why not? and it's just terrible
1: so you talked about maintaining it for the prosecutorial role just to explain so The DA prosecutes misdemeanors and felonies for the whole county, except not misdemeanors for the city of San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so one of the two main roles of the city attorney in the city of San Diego is to prosecute misdemeanors. Why not just give the misdemeanors, all of them, as has been proposed before, to the DA and just fully bring it in? Why even maintain that? Is it just sort of a compromise with the voters?
3: It's. Uh, it, I think it's. It's a couple of things. I think voters do like electing the city attorney, so I think that's part of it. Uh, but also the argument, because you're right, that that has been proposed in the past, and I think the the argument for for keeping those prosecutions in house has been that we get. Uh, a higher level of of service, if you will, because we're more focused just on the city. And so the city attorney is able to really go after quality of life issues and quality of life crimes and things like that, that that maybe within the larger DA's office Mm. just wouldn't get that same level of attention. I mean, I I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been the argument. Interesting. So one of the uh, presumptive
2: reasons to do this would be uh, to Remove any sort of concern that you might have as a as a legislator about the type of legal counsel you're getting before you make a decision, whether it is in any in any way shaded by the elected city attorney's own views of that policy decision. Do you feel that you have had legal uh, counsel provided to you that was
3: not exactly straight, objective legal counsel, but instead policy guidance? I would say the legal advice, uh, the the professional advice that we're getting generally from the, the deputy city attorneys, mm-hmm. right, who are the the lawyers who are just always there, uh, and tend to stick around. Even you know when we get a new city attorney, those folks stay there. <clears throat> that advice is, is is traditionally been very very good. Um, I, I think the concern, and again this goes back to the days of Aguirre, is is when. The, the elected city attorney views themselves as a policymaker, and, and that's really where you get into trouble because the mayor and the council are the policymakers. The city attorney is obviously there for for legal advice and for prosecutions and 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 for for litigating when things go 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 that direction, um, but not necessarily to make policy. And 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 that's been I think a battle that has been fought many times over many city city attorney administrations, and it's just something that I think the more you can take politics out of that office, the better. Everyone is going to be that. That relationship between the attorney and a client's is is just going to be a, a much better working relationship.
5: I remember when Mara Elliott, uh, we broke the news that she was working on a bill to sort of decimate the public records act. You said that you had learned about that proposal from us. Have there been any times uh, where you were just completely caught off guard by a decision or a proposal that the city attorney put forward?
3: You know, there, there's been a few things here and there with, you know, memos that, that uh, you know, we didn't necessarily see the first time and, and kind of found out about them later and things like that. And um, that hasn't been on, on any of my issues. So I, probably some of my colleagues who signed the memo with me would have more details as, as to that part of it. Uh, but again, this is not about Mara specifically. Mara and I actually get along really well. I voted for her last week. She's a constituent of mine uh, in District 5. And, and so it's not about her specifically. It's, it's about the way the office is structured and just the fact that we've set it up basically for there to be this conflict. And 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 I think you guys had on the podcast when Mara said, look, when when she got elected, she wanted to be apolitical, right? I don't think the job lets people do that. I honestly don't, because at some point you're gonna run for reelection. At some point you may seek higher office. And so by definition, you have to be political, despite whatever your better intentions might be. So it's know.
1: gotta be just uh it's gotta be just so enticing. Right. Yeah. I mean it's very it's conversation. Yeah. You have your own um, plans and goals for the November ballot, and that is to—one uh, of them is to get uh, a Citizens Review Board for to oversee city police activity and, and investigations into police um, potential abuses and things like that. And, and in particular, it would uh, have subpoena power for this independent yeah. board— Um, where's, what's the status of that right now and uh, what's the likelihood to get on the ballot and why is it so important?
4: Um, so a little bit of clarification. We actually already have a citizens review board uh, that goes forward and reviews cases for the police department. What we're trying to do is reform that system and instead replace the review board with an independent commission on police practices that it would be modeled similarly to the ethics commission. So it's outside of city hall. It has its own ED, its own staff, its own lawyers and it also has subpoena power. Um, the reason why this is so important is because there are a couple of inherent conflicts of interest built into the system as we have it now. Um, first off, the city attorney's office is the attorney for the Citizens Review Board, but it's also the attorney for the mayor, and it's also the attorney for the city council. So at a certain point when you know these cases come up, especially the higher level ones that get a lot of public attention, um, I think it's pretty difficult to say that you're going to get straight legal advice when you're giving it at three different angles. Um, And actually, the Community Review Board has been uh, spending money to have outside counsel for the last few years. So this would just make that permanent. Um, And also subpoena power, because right now, whenever uh, there is a police misconduct investigation, it's done internally by the police department, by internal affairs. Um, Our commission that we are asking to put forward would be able to do its own uh, investigations with its own investigators and then go through the subpoena process if necessary to do this. Now, it is a hybrid model. Um, What we have right now is purely a review model, which is where they get the files and then they read the files and they say, yes, no, this was good. This was bad. Did you think about that? And it has changed some of the police policies. So I do not want to take away from the work that the Community Review Board has done because it is really important, but there is more that needs to be done. This would also have the investigatory option and then also an audit function and which we would take a look at The different laws that have been passed, like AB 392 and body cams and other situations in which there is a law that's been passed either in the city or the state or the federal level where um, that impacts the police department, is the police department complying with that law? Um, If not, what policies and procedures do we need to change in order to do that? Um, I think there are a lot of communities who who feel this very deeply and viscerally. It has been shown quantifiably by SDSU and UCSD and the ACLU. The data is on our side here, and it's really, really important that we get this done. As far as where we are in the process, um, we chose to go through the city council route, Primarily because, if I'm honest, this is an issue that is being championed by communities of color. They do not have a lot of political infrastructure or big donors who are going to pay for them to go gather signatures. So we have to go the City Hall route. We've gone through all of our readings. Um passed all of those. Thanks for your vote, council member. Really appreciated that. Um, and now we're in the meet and confer process. And what that means is that the bargaining units that are responsible for the police department are in with the city right now determining whether or not this is going to impact their work and what adjustments they need if it is going to impact their, uh, their workplace. And so that is what's going on right now. Um, it's the last step before we go back to the full council to get a vote. It's also for me and those of us who've been paying attention – probably the scariest step because it's the part where we're locked out of the process and it's and meet and confer is also what was used in 2018 behind closed doors to make deals that made it so that they blew through the ballot deadline and were not able to get on the ballot in 2018. So right now our biggest concern is ensuring that meet and confer goes smoothly, that it gets done properly and on time so that we can qualify for the ballot by August and then we're ready to campaign.
2: Mm. So On the November ballot, we might be looking at measures that reform the police department, functionally eliminate the city attorney as a legal counsel for the city, raise taxes for transit, eliminate the coastal height limit for a certain area, pass a tax increase for affordable housing, and uh, authorize uh, the city council to potentially start the process of removing a school board member.
3: And ranked choice voting, too. And ranked choice voting. Yes, yeah.
2: ranked choice voting, another big Whew.
5: one.
3: Um, are you into that? I am. So yeah. what, what happened? Everybody take their bravery pills <laughs> last six months? What, what, what's going on? <laughs> I'd say it's a couple of things. First of all, we went to this system now where most ballot measures are in November mm-hmm. instead of in the primary, right? And so I get the theory behind that, but the practical impact is that of that is that it, it forces all of the measures onto one ballot, unless there's a a kind of a special circumstance that everybody agrees is a special circumstance, as we saw with Measure C, uh, which we can talk more about that if you guys want. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's – I think that that concept of of all these important decisions have to be decided in the the general election – makes for a very crowded ballot. And uh, I'm not sure how much uh, you know voter fatigue you see as they're kind of going through all these mm-hmm. things and what the ballot drop off is, is you get kind of farther on down. But um, yeah, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of meaty stuff on there and uh, it's gonna be a lot of really important issues for the city. And there's there's probably a few others in there that, uh, that you didn't mention, but yeah, those yeah. are the big
2: ones. What do you What is it you like about ranked choice voting?
3: I like ranked choice voting because it gives voters more options, uh, especially you look at this year. The primary being moved up so early, we're gonna have this really extended general election campaign that is gonna go on for what, eight months almost? And and uh and so it's gonna be the the top two in, in each of these races. And we just you know got rid of a whole bunch of candidates last week. And and I'm not sure how many voters were actually, you know, really into those races compared to, say, the presidential or anything else. We just had Christmas and New Year's, and then we voted, and and now we're gonna have this protracted general election. Uh, I, I don't like the early primary, as you can tell, um, and I don't think it's good for democracy. So I, I think that if you had a, a, a rank choice voting system where the top four candidates uh, out of the primary advanced in November and then you got to rank them, you know, for a second, third, fourth, um, I, I think voters have a, a better perspective. There's more uh, – there's a better diversity of, of political opinions that are going to be represented on the ballot. And uh, I think most fundamentally, you can actually pick and rank the candidates in the order you like them rather than just holding your nose and voting for the uh, the lesser of two evils, which I think is how a lot of people feel right now. Yeah. You into
1: it? Last take?
4: Um, I think it's going to depend on what the proposal looks like. I have a lot of reservations about – Changing the way people make decisions and and the, ne- uh, the necessity to explain that to the, that change to them. Um, I also have a lot of reservations about the fact that the city of San Diego would be voting in a different way than the rest of the county, and people are going to have multiple jurisdictions on their ballot, and I think that could be really confusing. I also think part of the appeal of ranked choice voting is to save taxpayer money and get rid of primaries altogether. And if we're not going to do that, then um, I am not a hundred percent sure that this is the way that I would do it. That being said, I totally understand the appeal behind it. Um, It's a little scary for me because of the business that I do. It would completely change my strategy on a lot of things. And that's a little bit terrifying. And so it's kind of hard to get 100% behind for selfish reasons. Um, But I think that, you know, I could be convinced
1: I think what, you know, what, to your point, San Francisco does it, but San Francisco is also a joint city and county yes. governance. So yes. they can handle that all in one. And there are other
3: cities. Oakland does it. The whole state of Maine is doing right. it. Uh, Wisconsin's looking to move the, the, that direction. So I think it's a discussion we should have. And there's going to be obviously amendments and there's different ways of yeah. implementing it. So I think that's all going to be part of the conversation next some, month at Rules Committee. Some peep.
1: Buttigieg supporters would have liked that <laughs> up. That's the thing. <laughs> Your vote doesn't
3: get wasted if you vote early. That's right.
1: All right. Uh, well, Councilman Mark Kersey and uh, political consultant Eva Posner, thanks for coming in. Okay. Thanks, thanks for having Thanks so much. Us. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It is the, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in downtown San Diego, recorded in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio, which is sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. Thank you, Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. If you want to keep up with all of our politics coverage, subscribe to the Politics Report. That comes out every Saturday. Get it at vosd.org politics. I am Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Sarah Libby is Managing Editor. Andrew Keeps, Keats <laughs> is Assistant Editor. And this show is produced by Nate John, Adriana Heldes, and Megan Wood. Talk to you next week.